as other reporters go out there and sort of, you know, shit on Michael Wolf and say he's irresponsible. And yes, he may be like there's something there that taps into the real truth of what's going on behind closed doors. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley and Hollywood and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 21st. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about a headline-grabbing new book about Fox News from controversial author Michael Wolff. But how much of Wolff's reporting is to be believed? And in an era of sanitized press-release journalism, do we actually need more journalists in the mold of Wolff, reporters who aren't afraid to pull punches? We also talk about Kristen Welker's big interview with Donald Trump in her debut as host of Meet the Press. Media critics hated it, but Dylan and I ask, maybe it's time for the media critics to offer more thoughtful criticism, other than just telling reporters to do better. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers of Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday and welcome to the powers that be, everybody. I'm joined today to talk media by Dylan Byers. Dylan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Peter. I'm doing really great. It's a really great. Wow. I would really love great. to hear that. Really great. Usually it's like, good, good, fine. Busy, this busy, a rich good. time of year. We've got, you know, like the return to sort of like the work cycle and the school cycle and people have books coming out and the election is getting underway. And it's, as I think I've said before on the podcast, I think the next six to eight months are going to be a very busy time on my beat. So yes, yes I'm doing very, very good. You're going to be busy on my beat too, my friend. Well, speaking of books and your beats... Michael Wolff, the best-selling and provocative and much-criticized uh, author, uh, is out with a book about the end of Fox News titled The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. It's coming out next week. It's already generating a ton of headlines, including one in which Rupert Murdoch apparently called Sean Hannity, quote, retarded, where Tucker Carlson talked openly about possibly running for president at one point. What else is in this book? Dylan and look, Michael Wolf has made headlines before. He obviously had a big Trump book in the early days of Trump's administration where he seemed like he got everyone to talk and make news. I think the criticism of him at the time was that 
he may or may not have breached sort of off the record agreements or he was just too willing to use single sources for stories that were too good to check. Uh, but before getting into the criticism, what, what else is in this book? There's a lot here. There's um, the insinuation that Hannity, who, yes, who Murdoch does not uh, hold in particularly high regard, was going to be a casualty of the Dominion suit, the $787 million defamation suit, and that he was then sort of swapped out for Tucker. And that in and of itself is a very bold claim that Tucker was forced out of the network because of an agreement made during the Dominion settlement. Uh, there are all sorts of sort of very sort of salacious details. There's, you know, uh, Michael on the plane uh, with Hannity and Laura Ingram and um, then like sort of get, like getting drunk on a morning flight. There's a lot and uh, a lot of sex, drugs and rock and roll here. Uh, a lot of insinuations <laughs> about uh, people's use of alcohol uh, at, in the Murdoch family. And I think like where to begin? What, one thing I should probably say from the get go is Michael Wolf, who, as you said, does hold a sort of controversial place in American journalism, was actually my first boss and wrote my first paychecks. And I, mm. I had the privilege of working for him for, I think, all of 10 to 11 months at Adweek before I moved down to D.C. to join Politico. Look, I think that he sort of sees himself in a tradition of literary journalism that certainly mm -hmm. is not nearly so self-conscious about the things that I think you and I sort of take for granted in this business of like rigorous fact-checking and honoring off-the-record agreements and things like that. And I think, look, it creates quite a bit of controversy in our circles. I would also say that from where he's sitting, he probably thinks anyone who worries about that is sort of a pathetic, um, <laughs> you know, sap who always sort of gets spun the wrong way. And I think what he's trying to tap into is his version of the best attainable version of the truth, which he gets to by having very intimate conversations with direct sources and then sort of coming up with a story that probably does contain quite a bit of juicy intel that more responsible reporters never never really achieve. I think that that's neither a defense nor a critique of his style. I do, however, think that it is particularly it is sort of feels like the most appropriate journalism for the Trump era in a way. If so much mm of Trump and Fox News is about just, you know, completely abandoning any allegiance to truth and factual accuracy in a way, you know, perhaps Michael Wolf is like sort of like the perfect journalist chronicler of these times. You know, I think from where I'm sitting, I I've read some of the excerpts. I've read uh, an interview he gave in Vanity Fair. And I think my feeling on it is my own reporting tells me that's that some of the things he has reported are accurate or very close to accurate. I'm sure there's quite a bit in the book that's accurate. And I have to assume that given his approach, there's probably certain parts that aren't accurate or that are embellished. And I think if I 
as sort of like a reader and and a fan of his, and I am a fan of his, as controversial as he is, and I, I you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure I owe him something along the way. I only wish that he were just like 20 or 30% more rigorous because then the otherwise very insightful reporting that he does would not have this enormous asterisk hanging over it, right? Which is the, every discussion about Michael Wolff has to come with the caveat of, can you trust this? Where Was he responsible in his reporting? And mm-hmm. in that regard, he probably does himself a disservice by by moving through it as quickly as he does. So with all of that out of the way, what I will say is, yes, there's a lot that sort of rings true here about the Murdochs, about, uh, you know, certainly Rupert Murdoch's assessment of the, some of the talent, most notably Hannity, Tucker Carlson. And I think at the broader level, getting to the sort of themes about the trajectory of this industry that you and I love to talk about is, will Fox News exist when the inevitable day comes, probably sooner rather than later, that Rupert Murdoch passes away? And I think that Michael is right to note that the entire Fox and News Corps business exists largely because of Rupert and that when he's gone, his children will have very different designs on what should happen to it. And I don't see a foolproof post-linear strategy for Fox News. I don't see any of the children wanting to hang on to a dying newspaper business and sort of romanticizing the newspaper business the way that their father has. And I think there are really significant questions about what's going to happen to Fox News when that inevitable day comes. And I think in terms of at least forcing that conversation from a business perspective, that that's probably what I find most compelling mm-hmm. about what he's done here, more so than all of these sort of great, sexy and salacious details from inside the room. I want to read to you what Oliver Darcy wrote in Reliable Sources the other night about this book. He got his hands on it, too. And it sort of validates what you're saying, Dylan. Quote, Wolf may not be the most reliable narrator. This is Oliver Darcy. Wolf has a long history of printing claims that end up being strongly disputed by the subjects themselves. Critics have chided him in the past for sloppy or unethical reporting practices. And his best-selling Fire and Fury, that's the Trump book I referenced, even contained outright factual errors. That's not to say everything Wolf prints is mistaken, blah, 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 blah. But the book should be viewed with a skeptical eye, especially until other news outlets attempt to to re-report them. So I mostly, I think I, I agree with that sentiment from a distance, not knowing Michael up close, you know, probably been in a couple of rooms with him over the years, but you did say something I kind of agreed with, which is I wish he was slightly more rigorous in his fact-checking and look, book publishing. And we saw this with Walter Isaacson's book about Elon Musk and that claim about Starlink that he had to retract. Book publishing doesn't have the same rigorous editing and fact-checking standards that newsrooms do. Very often people editing those books aren't journalists themselves and things fall through the cracks. And the name of the game is to sell as many books as possible, not necessarily okay. to follow the AP style guide or, you know, get an award from Columbia Journalism School. But there are a lot of reporters out there, especially in the politics and media beat and the world we work in that are probably too credulous, that are too close to their sources, that, you know, pull punches and aren't willing to tell the truth about what's really going on behind the scenes because they don't want to burn one of their sources Maybe they're too cozy with them. And like, you know, I think we need in one sense, and I think we have several of these journalists at Puck, more reporters like Michael Wolf, who kind of don't give a shit what the sources think, Mm -hmm. as long as they're kind of like telling the truth. At the same time, that 
POV is tarnished a little bit when certain things turn out to be outright wrong. <laughs> but Fox News came back and said, he didn't reach out to us for a fact checking process. Uh, you know, Wolf's response is like, why the fuck would I yeah, trust right. Fox News right. to like do fact checking here? Right. Which which I sort of sympathize with. I mean, you know, look, yeah, you should always reach out to the PR team, I suppose. But look, look, something that we have discussed from the very advent of Puck and of this podcast, Peter, is that there is a delta between the conversations that actually take place in the rooms where the powerful people are and then what actually gets reported. And I think mm -hmm. that as many journalists there, as there are out there who are working really hard and who are very scrupulous and dogged, I think you can really count on one hand the number of journalists who, who you would say, who you would sort of hold up on your Mount Rushmore of great political journalists who really have great sources, really get in the story, are very rigorous with the fact-checking process, and really push the ball forward and the vast majority of them sort of just fall into the sort of conventional wisdom or the narrative as established by people who are paid a lot of money to sort of set the narrative and frame the way that we think about these things mm -hmm. and in an ideal scenario i think you get someone who can be in all of these places talking to all of the powerful people and is really scrupulous with their fact checking but given how hard it is and how few and far between those journalists are, you sort of understand why the, the work that someone who's perhaps not quite as responsible in Michael Wolf is so compelling to read because it often feels like the people who are writing about politics aren't anywhere near those rooms, right? And they're getting something that's sort of like coming down from, you know, through people who are shaping the narrative, through spokespeople through through aids with an agenda whatever it might be and so it is really refreshing when you think you're getting something that's actually like from the horse's mouth or from the scene of the crime and you know in that regard i think it's why as much as as other reporters go out there and sort of you know shit on michael wolf and say he's irresponsible and yes he may be like there's something there that taps into the real truth of what's going on behind closed doors. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. But again, like you said, you just wish you wish that if he did 20 to 30 percent more work on the fact checking side, he could shed the asterisk and it could just sort of be the authoritative account. And it, mm -hmm. it will never quite be that because people will always approach it warily because of the reputation. That's right. All right, Dylan, I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the critical reception to Kristen Welker's Meet the Press debut interview with Donald Trump. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome back to the powers of beer everybody i'm joined by dylan byers we're talking what else media um dylan i want to ask you about the new regime at meet the press uh kristen welker uh, is the new host of Meet the Press after Chuck Todd has departed the show. Her first episode with Meet the Press was much hyped by NBC News and the TV networks love to hype their exclusives. Must see TV. Welker sat down with Trump. They taped an interview for more than an hour. They, they pre-taped it and aired the whole thing. They put most of it up on YouTube uncut, uh, which I respect. It got about two and a half million views on YouTube, which is about little apples to oranges, but about what <laughs> the press gets on actual TV uh, in terms of views. But she was really roasted by the sort of tweety press critics who love to attack journalists for not doing a good enough job interviewing Donald Trump. I feel like there's a whole cottage industry, by the way, of like <laughs> Jay Rosen, Bill Carter, just press critics like Michael Hiltzik and LA Times, who just like shit on every reporter who ever does an interview with Donald Trump as if those guys 
could do it any better. Like this weekend on Meet the Press, Jay Rosen gets shoved in a locker by Donald Trump. <laughs> what did you make of the criticism about this interview, which substantively was that once again, Trump just steamrolled the interviewer, talked all over her, dodged the questions. Uh, she wasn't able to control the interview. What do you make of that criticism? One, and then two, is this bad for NBC or does anyone really care that much? Uh, you know, Peter, I have a lot of uh, takeaways here. I think, first of all, if Michael Wolf, in his sort of reckless fashion, occasionally manages to to sort of bring us closer to the truth, <laughs> albeit not always responsibly, I would say that in this instance, Kristen Welker, like many of her her colleagues in the in the television journalism industry, by dint of their sort of an overabundance of caution and responsibility failed to meet the moment, certainly. And I'm, I'm sure there were a few headlines you could take, but there, there's nothing terribly newsworthy here. Uh, she did sort of get rolled over. And the criticism, like you mentioned, it sort of had echoes of the criticism of Caitlin Collins's uh, town hall, only in this case it was recorded, so they didn't have the excuse of it being live. And look, I, I think at the micro level in, inside NBC, that is probably the fault of too many cooks in the kitchen. I think some people who are advising her who maybe don't have as much experience dealing with television and with Trump, who are otherwise good journalists, but sort of didn't understand how to make this a great television moment. And it was probably a mistake to put Kristen Welker out on such a high wire in her debut on this show, which of course is is historically like the esteemed Sunday morning politics show. I should interrupt though. Like she probably moderated the best debate of the 2020 cycle. You know, she back has, in October no, she 2020. Like she's good. She proved herself she to good. be capable of the high wire act back then. And she's she's a good reporter. She is, and she definitely is. And it it obviously did not work this time around. She definitely received a lot of accolades for her performance moderating the debate. Um, I think those are two very different kinds of roles and kinds of obligations. In any mm -hmm. event, I think more importantly, I sort of agree with you most in terms of sort of being amused at this cottage industry of people who seem to like light their hair on fire because Kristen Welker failed to stop Trump from, his, you know, taking over an interview and spewing the mistruths and lies that he always does. And it's sort of it's sort of this group of people who continue to sort of view Meet the Press as what it was some 60 or 70 years ago uh, when when it was like the public affairs show of the nation, as opposed to what it has become, which is just another show on a dying platform that is linear television that no longer commands the, the conversation or drives a weekly news cycle in an era when there are no longer weekly news cycles because everything is on all the time happening digitally. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you know, when Chuck Todd was at Meet the Press, there was sort of this very, like, I would say misguided effort to sort of modernize the brand and make Meet the Press like a multi-platform brand in its own right, like a shingle inside of NBC. And I think Meet the Press is not a brand for the 21st century. It it just isn't. It's not a brand for the digital era. And I think that in a way, what all of this sort of spoke to in my mind is just that 
Meet the Press is no longer the forum in which these very significant, important interviews need to take place. And I don't think that many people ultimately care whether Kristen Welker did mm-hmm. like a fine job or not a fine job. Yeah, I think that's kind of right. And, and look, I think people care about seeing Trump do interviews. I don't think people care about like NBC has the exclusive versus CBS versus Eric Bowling or any random right wing podcast that Trump <laughs> appears on. Right. I also think the press criticism, you know, it always has. And by the way, you're right to call it a cottage industry. It's been the same tone since 2015. Not that many of the criticisms about how mainstream media covers Trump are correct, but there's a similar take in almost every single piece of media criticism about journalists interviewing Trump. And it is they let him spew his lies unchecked or unfiltered out to the American public. Yeah, a lot of times they do, but I think there's something that <laughs> a lot of these press critics don't understand, which is just politics. Like they they don't understand that only 3% of Americans don't have an opinion about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, let's take this year, for example, just going by the 538 average, his favorable rating has basically been 40% the entire year. His unfavorable rating has been 55% the entire year, and it hasn't changed. In other words, people have their minds made up about Donald Trump. And there's this idea that like, if Trump goes on Meet the Press and talks over Kristen Welker, there's somebody sitting at home watching Meet the Press as it happens on NBC on a Sunday morning. And they're like, oh, he makes a good point there. I'm actually going to support him <laughs> this time. And it's like, what what world do you live in? Like he, everyone, he, his name idea is universal and everyone has an opinion about Donald Trump. There are criticisms about the mechanics of these interviews, how reporters handle them, but the volume of them over the last seven years has resulted in a fact where you either like Trump or you don't. Yes, interviewers can be better, but like, again, like you said, it's so dated that someone is just like sitting at home and they're like, huh, interesting. I didn't know that about uh, the phony stolen votes in Pennsylvania. Well, this time, you know what? I might vote for Donald Trump, even though I voted for Biden last time. It is a fantasy that that human exists. No, that that is such a good point. And it is so misguided to think as media critics do that like Kristen Welker is going to be the firewall between Trump and a second term, right? Like she, this is not, no interview is going to do that. And I, I sincerely wish that we had more Jonathan Swans who could do like, like an actually very compelling interview that sort of just like very much laid bare the, the sort of insanity of some of Trump's claims it's sort of a great mystery to me, actually, why why Jonathan Swan isn't on television right now. That, that's mm. an aside. But um, these are not the things that matter. And I think for media critics, one, I, I think that in this era, I think it's really hard to find something new to say as a media critic. And two, I think that the mm. entire the conversation in that world for the last seven, eight years has been what is the appropriate way to cover Trump. And because no one has, uh, again, perhaps outside of of like Jonathan Swan's 30 minutes, because no one has demonstrated a great way to do it, and no one really knows a great way to do it, the easiest thing for media critics to do is just sort of beat up on the people who try and inevitably fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to a lack of imagination, perhaps, about how to approach the media criticism beat. But in any event, none of this really matters all that much. And because, again, it's like we actually we're not going to change hearts and minds here. 
And on top of that, we sort of know what the audience is for an interview like this, because the audience for the Kristen Welker interview was 3 million, which is about the same as the audience for the Trump town hall. And mm-hmm. that represents like 0.01% of the entire U.S. population. And it just it's not the way that the news cycle moves anymore. And I admire everyone who gives it a shot, whether it's Caitlin or Kristen or anyone else. But I think we do need to get over this idea that we somehow like that the media has like the power and the influence that it had back in the days when like Lawrence Spivak was hosting Meet the Press. Good Lawrence Spivak reference. Uh, Yeah, I I have levied my fair share of criticisms at the press and how they cover politics over the years. But I just can't read any more like hand-wringing ivory tower media columns uh, because they just say the same thing over and over again. And it's just the same thing that like resistance Twitter screams at journalists on Twitter, which is do better. Like, okay, thanks. Thanks for thanks for your lazy 1200 word take that you just recycle every single time Trump does an interview with the mainstream press. Like, I just don't I I don't know. It's exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting, too. Ten years ago, I used to write those columns. I know what it feels like to recycle the same critiques over and over and over again. And the truth is, is the much more fundamental challenge here, which is what obviously I've turned my attention to more recently, is actually that these by virtue of the changing winds of the business and the business models is that these roles no longer hold the influence that they used to. They are no longer as august as they used to be, and they will not exist in the way that they exist now, probably in a matter of years. And so if you want to think about what the media can do to more adequately meet this moment, I would say, one, you have to be more thoughtful about the actual the business model and, and being relevant mm-hmm. to your readers and meeting your readers where they are. And then the other thing I would say, and this will put every media critic out of business, is just do the journalism. <laughs> just do the reporting. Just don't. Well, I think with this, the critiques. <laughs> this is a this is one. I mean, embedded in the term media critic is that you criticize, uh, you know, for every article you write criticizing Kristen Welker, like go write a column about like Anna Wolf and Mississippi Today, like winning the Pulitzer Prize this year for the state's welfare scandal, <laughs> like right. write a positive story about what the media is doing right. Those are hard to come by, but yes. Yes, yes but also <laughs> like, you know, and I say this from my perch at, at Snapchat in which I reach millions of, of viewers, like none of these media critics like watch my Snapchat show. <laughs> like right. they can write, they can watch it and criticize it all they want. But like the fixation on the like same six newspapers and like five television networks, like that's all that gets written about. And there's so many different forms and bits and pieces of media floating around out there that are interesting, different, and maybe they don't pass the snooty journalism smell test, but the media is much bigger than just uh, meet the press. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me, buddy. Thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.